Escape Pod 149 March 13th, 2008 Today's story, Union News, All That We Leave Behind, by Jeffrey Arlen Regal. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and this week we're brought to you by Infected, Scott Sigler's science fiction thriller coming April 1st from Crown Books. Yeah, that's right. Sigler's hitting the big time, and I love this book. I'll have more to say about Infected after the story. It's been a long time since we've run one of Jeffrey Durego's Union Dues stories. If you've missed the earlier ones in the series, I'll link to them in the show notes. This is a superhero universe with some pretty heavy shades of gray. His past stories have been some of our most popular, and I think you'll like this one. It kind of goes back to the roots of why so many of us, as teenagers, read these comics in the first place. Scott McCloud, in his book Understanding Comics, talks about a technique called masking. Very often in comics, you'll see that artists will draw very detailed, realistic backgrounds and objects, often clothing too, but the characters' faces aren't nearly as detailed as everything else on the page. We don't notice this much because we're used to seeing it. McLeod says this is done because the less photorealistic a face is, the fewer features it has, the easier it is for the reader to mentally substitute their own face into the image, to transfer themselves onto the character and imagine themselves in the story. There's more to it than that. I recommend understanding comics, not just for comics fans, but for general writing techniques. That bit about masking works in prose literature too, I think. It's a common tip not to over-describe your characters, especially your main characters. Being less specific leaves more room for the audience to collaborate. And we need that room. We read these stories because we want to be the heroes. We want to see ourselves as different than we are, but we also want to think that the heroes could be us. It's a compromise between fantasy and reality. We don't want to lose ourselves completely, but we want that hint of possibility. Because whatever these heroes have to go through, It's got to be a lot more fun than our own lives, especially our teenage lives. So, today's story is Union Dues, All That We Leave Behind, by Jeffrey R. Durego. Mr. Durego lives in New Hampshire, and he's as close to a regular as Escape Pod has. In addition to his stories here, you can also find his henchman diaries at Flashquake.com and some terrific zombie stories at TalesOfWorldWarZ.com. His first piece there, Lilies for Donald, won their first story prize last year. So fix yourself a healthy snack. It's story time. Union Dues, All That We Leave Behind, by Jeffrey R. Durego. 1. If I just lay here, they'll get tired and leave. They can't hurt me all that much. My body is too hard now, too strong but I can't let on that their kicks and punches don't bother me, or who knows what they'll do next. So I'll lay here, curled up in the grass like some lump of igneous rock cast from a faraway volcano. You fat-ass son of a bitch! Talk to Lorene again and I'll kill you! You understand me? I'll beat your fat, lazy ass to death! I bet his foot is starting to ache. My stomach is big, but it's not soft. Not anymore. Not since last month when the change happened. We don't have a lot of money, so my wardrobe is still designed for a 300-pound teenager, the kind with an almost unnatural love for pizza and potato chips. I still sort of look the same, but I am different. I can feel it. The rolls of flab that once encircled my belly and back are nearly gone, replaced by rippling muscle. My arms and legs are like tree trunks. 
I could rip Scott's arms and legs off and beat his torso like a kettle drum. Well, if I wasn't terrified. Tell me I'm the king, Fat Timmy. Tell me I am your king, you fat shit. Say it or I'll keep kicking you. I choke out. You're the king, Scott. That's right, I am. Fat Timmy, you better remember that the next time you think Lorene wants to hear something out of your fat face. Got it? I got it. I lay there a little longer and listen to their footsteps recede. I'm alone, but wait another full minute before climbing back to my feet and brushing the dirt off my clothes and from my curly red hair. I turn towards the steps in the back of Mr. Fernandez's yard and walk home. My hands still tremble. My heart still thunders, even though they're gone. The house is dark and sticky. The air smells of antiseptic and pine cleaner. Mom is sleeping, moaning in her sleep, really. The home health aide cleans the kitchen, so I creep as quietly as possible to the door of Mom's room. She's there, like always, curled up like a little baby under the white blankets with an IV drip in her arm. She's breathing deep, and I don't want to disturb her. Mom won't be like this much longer. The cancer has eaten away her liver and most of her pancreas. The only other sound upstairs is the quiet ticking of the mantel clock. A whispered voice says, Tim? Hi, Marisol. You okay? You look like you've been rolling around in the dirt. She has flowing black hair, sparkling brown eyes, coffee-colored skin, and a petite, slender body. Marisol is as old as Mom, but in contrast to the sickly woman in bed, she looks as vibrant and beautiful as the head cheerleader at school. I tripped in the lot on the way home. It's nothing. Hungry? Always. And that's no lie. The hunger is relentless since the transformation. No matter how much I eat, there's room left over. Before, when I was just fat, the urge to eat was more for comfort than anything else. Now I fall asleep if I don't keep eating. I guess making muscles takes a lot of energy. Come downstairs and I'll make sandwiches. I smile and follow her down. I notice her curves even better from behind, then shake my head and try to think of other things. I can't leer at her. I don't want Marisol to feel creepy about coming here. She's been a great help for Mom, better than the last three aides we've had, who are more interested in watching the downstairs TV and using the phone than making sure Mom was comfortable. She places three bologna, tomato, and mayonnaise sandwiches on the table and begins collecting her stuff. Be back tomorrow, Tim. Have a nice evening. I will. She has a wide, lovely smile. I have to pick up her prescriptions in the afternoon, so I might be a little late. That's fine. I'll be at school, but it's nice that she tells me. The house drifts back into near silence. I pull two Union comics, Emerald Blaze and Kinetic Girl, from my backpack as I eat. I've read them both already, but these are good enough for a second look. Kinetic Girl has the better storyline of the two, so I reread hers first. I flip to the end of the book and the ad for X-ray specs. They don't really work, I know that, but I like to imagine that they do. How cool would it be to walk around all day and see through things on a whim? A little rectangle sits below the X-ray specs ad. It reads, Feeling special? Feeling different? Stronger? Faster? Smarter? We may want to speak with you. 1-800-468-6466 I put the book down and wonder why I hadn't noticed that ad before. I check on Mom. She's still sleeping soundly as I flip open my cell phone and slip into the bathroom. The line rings, connects, and plays back a message asking for my story. I'm not sure what they mean by story, 
But I tell them that a few months ago, I changed from a big fat kid into a big strong kid, but that I haven't been dieting or working out. I tell them that it just sort of happened, and suddenly realize how stupid my message sounds. I hang up. 2. Scott stands over me, though this time he doesn't touch me. He spits and flicks little rocks at my face with the tip of his boot because kicking me hurts his feet. I'm too terrified to move. I don't care what your excuse is, fat ass. Got it? I got it. Just because you've dropped a few pounds doesn't mean you run the show around here. I lay there silently. There's something different in his voice now. Something I've never heard from my tormentors before. Uncertainty. I've been stomping your ass since we were ten, and I am not stopping now. He rambles on a little longer before his friends get tired and start to leave. With no audience left to impress, the sport ends. He makes one final kick at my gut, then tries to hide his limp as he walks away. I stretch up and get to my knees and start to dust off. My book bag is open, the contents scattered around the empty lot. Next time, Scott, I mutter and start collecting my things. A voice rumbles from the nearby bushes. Why'd you just lay there, kid? I whirl around, and Megaton steps out of the dense bushes, seven feet tall, rippling with muscle, coated in matching bright yellow spandex tights and mask, black boots and cape. A huge black M spreads across his chest. Megaton? I shake my head. It's impossible that he's standing here. He's a second stringer in the books now, hot-headed and impulsive with a streak of regret that he was demoted from the Chicago first team for insubordination. Well, in the comic at least. Got beat on a lot, huh? I blush. Yeah, something like that. He picks up two of the magazines spilled from my bag and hands them to me. His hands are as big as boxing gloves. Emerald Blaze? Tales of the Luminaries. You got good taste in comics, kid. If you have any with me in them, I'll sign them for you. I have a few at home. I stand there, mouth agape for a few silent, awkward seconds. Why are you here? I mean... Why are you here talking to me? You let those guys wail on you three times this week. You afraid of them or something? I shrug and blush, then lie. I... I didn't want to hurt them. Hurt them? Or snap them into tiny little pieces? I reach to shake his hand, and he squeezes. Not so hard at first. I squeeze back, matching his pressure. We go back and forth until my muscles ache and burn. He squeezes harder. Then me. Then him. Then me again. My muscles harden and wrench down around the bones of my arm. Give me your best, kid. I ring my fingers around his and hear the squeal and crack of compressing bone. Megaton grunts. Not bad. What's the most you've lifted? Embarrassed, I lower my eyes. I've... I've never really tried. He's surprised at my admission. It's only been two months since this all started. One month since I called that number. They've been watching me for at least a week. Maybe more. The first thing I did when I knew I'd manifested was lift up the family car just to see if I could. You must have done something to give the muscles a try. Nothing. Then how do you know? I just do. I can feel it. I'm even more embarrassed now. Megaton towers over me, and I fight the urge to curl up on the ground and wait for him to leave. That's not good enough, kid. Why'd you call if you didn't know? I didn't know what or who I was calling. The ad doesn't say anything about the union. It was just there. Megaton laughs. I'll have to tell Darksider you didn't get the punchline.
Huh? The number, 468-6466. You didn't look at the letters on the keypad? Jeez, it's 1-800-GO-UNION. Everyone gets that. At least, everyone that calls. Until now. I feel a little more at ease. He's nice, in a weird, just-stepped-out-of-a-comic-book way. Well, since we don't have a car around... Come here, kid. Pick me up. I... what? Pick me up. Deadlift me. I'm almost 300 pounds of mass. If you can get me up over your head, hell, even up off the ground, then you called the right number. I step up slowly as he turns around and raises his arms. Get a good grip, but don't crush my ribs, okay? Okay. I slide my hands around his waist and lock my fingers together. His body feels like poured concrete. I wonder if bullets bounce off of him. Ready? I ain't got all day. I lean back a bit, and he comes up. I unlock my hands and put one at the small of his back and another at his neck. A second later, he's above my head. He seems to weigh almost nothing, like I'd hoisted a refrigerator box full of packing peanuts. Okay, kid. Put me down. Nice and gentle. I ease him back down. How'd it feel? I could have tossed you around like a doll. My muscles don't even burn. Welcome to the union, kid. I need to drop some paperwork on your mom and dad, then we'll schedule a pickup. Probably take about a month. What? Wait, I can't just leave. He flinches. Does he think I'm going to fight him? You don't understand. I want to go, but I can't. Not yet. Megaton freezes for a second. If your parents are the problem, they don't want you to go or can't deal with the fact that you're different, better. What? No, it's nothing like that. I point through the poplar trees lining the backyards of the houses on my street. I can explain it all if you just give me a minute. Okay, talk. My father died of cancer five years ago. My mother has terminal cancer now. I'm all she's got left, and if I go she'll die, not just from the disease. She's comfortable, as much as can be, considering. And if I leave, all of that will end. I can't add to her suffering by not being here. Megaton scratches his chin. I didn't know. We don't watch for that kind of stuff on an evaluation trip. Well, maybe you should. He shrugs. A thick, uncomfortable silence falls across the lot. Megaton looks around. We can't hang around here together out in the open for too long. How far away do you live? I point through the trees again. Just over there. Most of the neighbors are old, but nosy. You probably don't want to walk up the street if you're trying to be inconspicuous. This secrecy shit gets to me. We can slip in through the back. I'll go first and try to make sure no one's watching. Can you believe they dress me up like this, then want me to blend? Megaton tugs at the M on his chest. We push through the evergreen branches and into the backyard. Marisol's car is still in the driveway. Damn it, we'll have to wait. Come on, we can hide until the nurse leaves. I check the yard to make sure we're still unobserved, then try to walk casually to the garden shed. The shed door squeaks open. I take a final glance around the yard, then wave Megaton in. He jogs from the trees and squeezes into the tiny wooden building. I press in behind him. The rakes and hose on the wall rattle and threaten to fling themselves off their hooks as he fumbles down into the corner. No matter where I go, I end up squeezed in. Ow! A planting trowel bounces off Megaton's knee. Jeez, kid, when was the last time you cleaned this shack? Mom and Dad used to love gardening. You can see the furrows where sweet corn and sunflowers used to grow over there. 
I point out to an overgrown rectangular patch ringed in chicken wire. Mom kept things going after Dad died, but when the cancer came for her, she had to give it up. I tried too, but I wasn't strong enough. Ironic, huh? I glance up at the sheer curtains fluttering in the window beside her bed, where she used to watch me struggle with a pitchfork and rake. I don't know irony from ironing, kid. All I know is you gotta get me out of this shack before I go berserk. I leave the door open a crack so I can see Marisol's car. We're safe. He answers with a grunt, then we sit in silence for a long minute. She should be leaving any time now. I got all day. What's it like? He scratches the top of his masked head. What's what like? Being in the Union. I don't know. Sort of like being in school, I guess. Except it's all gym class. Oh. You don't sound enthusiastic. I hate gym. Well, you got nothing but gym for the next rest of your life. It's not all powerlifting contests and making small talk in sheds. Are the villains really evil? Villains? What villains? He almost laughs. Dr. Maniacal, Crimson Cleaver, the Mayhem Cadre, they're all in the books. Megaton laughs. Those guys are pure fiction, kid. We deal in disaster. And, and brand loyalty. That doesn't make any sense. If there aren't any villains, then what's the point? Public relations. He stretches up and peers through the small window beside the row of hedge-trimming shears. Look, kid, are we going to spend all afternoon in here? The charter explains everything. You have one, don't you? The center of every comic has a copy folded inside. I have one. You haven't read it, though, right? No one ever reads it. Waste of ink, if you ask me. I lower my eyes, then check the driveway. Marisol's car is still there. How'd you end up in the Union? Same as everyone else. I changed. You called the Go Union number? Special Services hadn't considered voluntary recruitment yet. They got me the old way. I had an incident. Long story. Boring, too. I guess I'm lucky, then. Maybe. It's probably a lot less painful when people don't know and you can just disappear. Megaton wriggles down. The shed's plywood floor creaks and groans beneath his weight. Let's make a deal. My mom hasn't got long. A few months, maybe. A year tops. After that, I'll call again, as soon as the funeral ends and everyone forgets that she used to be alive. And I'll come, without hesitation. I'm surprised at my resolve. I don't like to talk about how Mom is doing. The thought of her being gone scares me more than a beating from Scott. But right now, Mom's still alive. She still has time. Megaton rubs his chin again. Look, kid. My name is Tim. Look, Tim. You got a duty to serve. As soon as you change, and the Union knows it, you have to come and put your special talents to use for the good of mankind. Besides, I got rules and protocols to follow. I can't make an exception. Hell, we just recruited a friggin' infant. Man, I'm glad that isn't my pyramid's problem. So, like this shed with me in it, there ain't any wiggle room. I knew his answer already. They touch on recruitment every now and then in the comics, so it's not totally unfamiliar. She's my mother. We all got mothers. We don't all have mothers that are going to die. Like this. I glance out. Marisol drops her things into the trunk and starts poking around the yard. She's looking for me. Tim? Hi, Marisol. Just looking for, um, a flower pot. I was worried. She stays by her car and waves. Anything I can help you with? I'm cool. See you tomorrow.
I wave as she slips behind the wheel and drives away. I look back at Megaton. Ghost is clear. Come on in. I lead us to the side door and up slowly and as quietly as possible to the door of Mom's bedroom, but our combined weight threatens to collapse the stairs. See? Jeez, she looks dead already. Megaton steps back from the door. I mean, sorry, man. That was insensitive. It's all right. She's getting a morphine drip, so she isn't really here. Not really, anyway. I'm sorry for you. Honest. Don't be. If you saw her face when the oncologist told her how long she might live, if she was lucky, she didn't cry. She smiled. Everybody knows they're going to die. Only a few know when. She said it was like having permission to do whatever she wanted for a year. My mind races back over the two years we had before the cancer sent her to bed for good. We traveled cross-country by car, visited amusement parks, and ate gallons of ice cream. For a year, she was my best friend. Come on downstairs. I need a cold drink. Megaton follows me down to the cramped cellar kitchen. The old cooking smells permeate the walls. He says, Hey, Tim, I've been thinking. You aren't fully developed yet. I can report that you're still iffy, that I hadn't seen enough to convince me or one of us. I can put you on a watch list. That should give you a couple of months or so before someone comes back to observe and evaluate you again. You? Not unless I get in trouble. I'm way outside my district now. Eval is a punishment job. Punishment? What did you do? He's silent for a long time before whispering. I killed a kid on a trip like this one. Jeez! I still see his face sometimes when I close my eyes. Megaton pauses, then shakes his head. What I'm saying is, when your mom passes, you can call, and I'll come back for you personally. But you have to play it cool. You can't have an incident. You can't show off, even by mistake, or I'll be in big, big trouble. The union hates being lied to, even if the reasons are good. I understand. Megaton asks for a pen and paper. He writes down a long series of numbers. This will pass you through directly to me without hitting the switchboard. Call me when you're ready. But if I haven't heard from you in six months, I'm coming back, and you're leaving with me. Understood? I nod. It's dark enough out that he can slip away unseen. And he does. I creep back upstairs and settle into the wing chair beside Mom's bed. She's awake now. She says, I had the strangest dream. A giant yellow man was here, standing at the door and looking at me. I thought he was an angel, but he seemed so sad. I stroke her wisps of chemo-whitened hair. Painkillers do funny things, huh? They do. She nods off for a few seconds, then her eyes snap open again, and lucidity floods back. I'm sorry for being like this, Tim, but I'm so tired. I see the twinkle in her eye as she speaks. I shush her and continue stroking her hair. Why are you so strong? You don't have to fight like this. I'm big. I can take care of myself now. Mom gasps as the morphine pump dispenses another hit into her IV. You're not so big. She drifts away again, and her eyes close. 3. I'm afraid to leave the house, because I'm freakishly large now. I stopped going to school, too. Dropping out was the hardest thing I've ever done. I blamed Mom's cancer, and that seemed to keep Principal Hodges from trying to persuade me to stick it out until graduation. But it wasn't Mom, it was me. Afraid I'd accidentally tear a locker door off or kill someone during a dodgeball game. 
Scott's behavior didn't change. He wasn't dissuaded by my new body either, and took great pleasure in yelling, Fat Timmy! Fat Timmy! whenever he saw me in the cafeteria or hallway. His friends still laughed, but not as loudly. I was afraid I'd get mad and pound him into slurry. So I quit. Mom's worse. She hasn't been conscious for a month. I don't know if it's from loneliness or frustration, but I have to get out of here for just a little while. I scoop the last of my allowance and walk two blocks up the road to Gooba's pharmacy. Dad used to take me here when I was just a kid because they had an old-fashioned soda fountain right at the front of the store. I'd sip a raspberry lime ricky while he caught up on town gossip. They took the soda fountain out during the last renovation, but the front of the store is still pretty much the same otherwise. The magazine rack sits beside the huge storefront windows. Rows of other things, shampoo and perfume, that sort of stuff, lead back to the pharmacy counter. Hi, Tim. Marisol eases beside me at the magazine rack. Nice to see you finally out of that house. I was beginning to worry. I try to steer the conversation away from my self-imposed exile from the universe. Picking up Mom's prescriptions? That and a few things for me. But it's your day off, Marisol. I can take care of the medicine. It's my duty. Honestly, running errands for your mom is no trouble. I had to be here anyway. Besides, I don't think the pharmacist will dispense liquid morphine to a 16-year-old. Marisol glances at the comic books in my hand. Don't you already have those? They print new ones every week. Scott and Laureen cruise through the doors. I immediately draw a hard look from Scott, but hard looks are all he has left. I'll see you tomorrow, Tim, Marisol says. I nod and smile as she saunters off for the pharmacy counter. Laureen is staring at me. We were best friends in kindergarten but as soon as it wasn't cool to hang around with the fat kid, she joined the rest of my schoolmates, to whom I was either invisible, despite my size, or a perfect target for their anger. The first time she laughed at me hurt more than any beating I ever received from Scott or any of the other nameless bullies who beat me black and blue. Now, though, she offers a little wave and a big smile. Maybe I'm not so freakish? I blush as Scott tugs her arm and glares at me before they disappear into the depths of the store. I'm waiting in line when two men enter and walk briskly towards the pharmacy. Normally, I wouldn't notice them, but it's almost summer, and they're dressed in long black coats. Winter coats. One is blonde with a shaggy mullet, the other is shaved, but I think the hair was black because it looks like the top of his head was dipped in charcoal dust. I drop the comics in front of the cashier and crane my neck back towards the pharmacy. The men are there, in line, both of them shuffling from one foot to the other, and each of them glancing back towards the front door every few seconds. I whisper to the cashier, Call the cops. Huh? Why? Just do it. I slip out of line and sneak back towards the pharmacy. Marisol is chatting with one of the pharmacists. Blondie barks, Jesus! We don't have all goddamn day! The other customers try to ignore them. I find Lorene in the shampoo aisle and point towards the men twitching and fidgeting in the pharmacy. Get out of the store. She stares at me for a second, then at them, and her wide eyes tell me she understands. What about Scott? Get him out too, and get away. The men are standing directly behind Marisol now. Then, simultaneously, they draw weapons. Blondie wields an old pump-action shotgun, skinhead a thirty-eight revolver. Oxy, now, and the money. All of it and no one gets hurt. Anyone calls the cops and we start shooting. Skinhead waves his pistol back and forth, and the customers scatter. Marisol whirls around. Her face pales, and her eyes are wide and frightened. 
She raises her hands and starts to back away. Don't be stupid! Blondie grunts and grabs her by the arm, snatches her purse and throws it to Skinhead, who dumps it out and grabs her wallet. Skinhead yelps, We don't want to hurt no one. Just give us the pills and we go. They haven't seen me, and they won't if I stay down behind the aisle shelf. Their attention is focused only on the pharmacist. I should wait this out and let the cops deal with it. Besides, if I do anything showy, then it'll be Megaton that takes the heat. I don't want to join the union with anyone mad at me either, but I'm more concerned about him. If I do anything, then the last four months in this black hole of an existence I adopted to protect him will be for nothing. Don't show off, not even by mistake. His words ricochet through my head like the echo of the Grand Canyon. Marisol screams, Let me go, please! Shut up, lady, and you won't get hurt! Blondie shoves Marisol away from the counter and levels the shotgun at the pharmacist. I'm afraid if I do anything, they'll shoot her, or me, or both of us, and it's like I'm laying there in the dirt behind my house with Scott kicking my fat stomach. If I just wait here and do nothing, they'll get tired and leave. Someone, the cashier probably, punches the alarm. The two emergency exits lock automatically. A metal shutter slams down at the pharmacy counter. Now it's just them, Marisol, and me, only one way out of the place, through the front door. I glance back down the aisle as Lorene, Scott, and the cashier scramble out and away, and two cruisers screech to a halt outside. Blondie barks, Shit! We're cornered! Find a way out, man! Skinhead runs from emergency exit to emergency exit, but the place is sealed like a tomb. Both of the doors are locked tight, and there's cops all over. What do we do? A bullhorn blares, Come out now! Drop your weapons and exit the building! Blondie grabs Marisol's arm and pulls her in front of him like a shield. Find a way out, man! Skinhead starts checking the aisles for other customers. I stay low and creep to the end of the row beside the display of toilet paper and picnic napkins. We got a hostage! Blondie waves the shotgun around, but doesn't release Marisol. I'll kill her, man! I'll blow her goddamn head off if anyone tries to come in! I can't hide anymore. There isn't time to think about being shot, or making a bad impression, or screwing over Megaton. If they kill Marisol, then it will be my fault. I have to do something. I can apologize to the Union and Mom later. Suddenly, I'm no longer afraid. My muscles have chased the fear away. What if he shoots me? What if I die? So what? Saving Marisol is all that matters now. I grab Skinhead as he creeps around the aisle end and hoist him up until his head slams against the ceiling. He kicks and writhes, but I manage to tear the gun and four fingers from his hand. He's in too much pain to scream. I hurl him across the store and through the cash register stand. Blondie whirls around. He jams the shotgun muzzle against Marisol's cheek. I growl, Let her go. He flinches, but doesn't shoot. I grab the aisle shelf and shove the whole thing sideways across the store. Bottles and boxes scatter across the floor. I'm going to count to three, and you're going to let her go. The path between us is clear now. He's shaking. His eyes dart back and forth. Is that what I looked like when Scott towered over me? Marisol shakes too. She stares at me. I've never seen anyone so terrified. Tim, don't move. Please don't, she whispers. Don't take another step! Blondie pushes the shotgun up again. I'll blow her head off, man! I'll do it! One. I stomp down good and hard, so the pharmacy walls shake. Tim, please don't. Do what they say.
They're going to kill me. Tears run down Marisol's face. I'm going to make him pay for that. Two. I stomp down again. White dust floats down from the ceiling tiles. I am only six feet away now. Let her go, and I won't hurt you. Let her go, and you can keep me instead. Let her go, and I won't rip you in half! He flings her aside, brings the shotgun to bear on my chest, and fires. Buckshot tears through my sweatshirt and ricochets harmlessly off my skin. Marisol jerks backwards and cries out as the blowback peppers her legs and stomach. Blondie screams, Oh God! Oh God! Shit, man! Shit! I lunge forward. His shoulders crumple like aluminum foil beneath my fingers. 4. Skinhead is comatose. Blondie won't ever walk again. The union lawyers are already writing checks to both of them to circumvent a civil suit. The state won't press charges because the store security cameras recorded the whole thing, so the preliminary investigation declared my actions as self-defense. The union is making good for Mom, too. She's getting a half million dollars cash. The lawyers will donate anything left over after she passes to a cancer charity. I made sure there was some for Marisol, too, for whatever surgery she needed, and a little for after, but she won't know where the money came from until Mom passes away. Kinetic Girl paces the living room while I say goodbye. She checks the window every five minutes like she's waiting for a pizza delivery. I don't know why they sent her to pick me up instead of Megaton, but I'm not complaining. She looks even better live than in the books, with her yellow and pink tights that look like they're sprayed on rather than worn. She's a lot more modest in person, too, which I didn't expect, and actually blushed when I asked if she'd sign a couple of comics for me, as if no one had ever asked her that before. I've been on television three times since the incident, twice on the Capitol News Network and once on a local news segment about hometown heroes. I called Megaton's switch-through number and tried to explain the situation. Look, Tim, he said. It ain't like you went out looking to show your stuff. Any one of us in that situation would have done the same thing. So I get more eval trips. So what? Better than reading obituaries any day of the week. He asked about Mom and promised to check up on me after I started training. Carla, the new home health aide, sits beside Mom's bed. She's terrified of me and has been since she first arrived. I guess I don't blame her. I used to look like my mother. Now I look like King Kong. Mom occasionally mumbles through the morphine, but never opens her eyes anymore, and that's probably better for the both of us. She wouldn't recognize me. I kneel beside the bed, because I'm too large to sit on the edge anymore. I stroke her hair. I lean down to kiss the cool, clammy skin of her cheek and neck. I have to go now. I'm not afraid anymore. My voice cracks a little, but I hold on to my composure. I love you, Mom. She groans and gasps. I lay my head on her chest and pretend she tells me how proud I've made her. And that was our story. You know what I find refreshing about this story? The kid has some conflicts. There's things holding him back. But it's not the cliche, Oh no, these things make me different. I'm so cursed and unhappy. You give me superpowers, and depressed wouldn't be my first reaction to it. Now here's a promo for a book about a much better reason to be unhappy. They tap into your bloodstream like tiny little vampires. They hack into your nervous system like you were a walking computer network built just for them. They flood your body with chemicals 
that cause fear, paranoia, and psychotic rage. It's a disease that thinks. It's a disease that talks. And if you're lucky, you die before it becomes a disease that walks. On April Fool's Day, experience the horror thriller novel Infected, the major hardcover release from number one best-selling author Scott Sigler, creator of the free podcast novels Earthcore, Ancestor, and Nocturnal. Available April 1st online and in bookstores everywhere. Free audio chapters of Infected are available at scottsigler.com and infectednovel.com. The disease kills you slowly if the cure doesn't kill you first. Many of you already know about Scott Sigler. He's been podcasting first-rate thrillers on his own site and patiobooks.com for years. There have been a number of previously podcast books hitting print these days, including Merle Lafferty's Heaven and Scott's earlier stuff. But this is different. This isn't small press. Infected is a major hardcover release, and Crown Publishing is putting the money into making it the summer blockbuster this year in the thriller genre. This is for a book that was already podcast for free. This is why I'm excited that Infected is the first major book sponsorship that we've secured. And I'm going to be totally upfront and tell you this is why you, as a podcast listener, should buy the book. For one thing, it's a kick-ass story. But also because if Infected succeeds, it sets precedent. The publishing industry will notice that, hey, podcasting a book helps sell the book. You'll start seeing the big names put out more and more podcast fiction. That's more good free stuff for you to listen to, and everybody wins. As part of this, by the way, we're working with Scott to give away free signed copies of Infected for both Escape Pod and Pseudopod listeners. We've only got a few, and we'll pick randomly. For your shot at it, send your name and address to infected at escapepod.org. One entry per person, please, and yes, we will keep your information private. The deadline for that is March 25th. And remember, the book hits the stores April 1st. Well, that took a while, but I talk a lot when I'm excited. I should do feedback here on Edward Bear, but this outro is long enough already, and I don't want to be too brief on the response to that story. I do want to put in a quick personal note here. I'm recording this a couple days after the Escape Pod Metacast hit the feed, and already the response has been overwhelming. We've had more notes of support and offers of help than I ever could have expected. Thank you, all of you. I'm going to respond to all of you, too, but it might take me a little while. I'm still playing catch-up, and still at the point where getting organized is a task on top of all the tasks that need to be organized. But everything you've said means a lot to me. Your notes are making me feel more connected to this podcast, and without being hokey about it, more loved than I was before. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is distributed on a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So please, spread the love. Just don't change the love, or sell the love. If you love what you're hearing, I hope you'll tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please do consider donating via the PayPal link at our site. You can also buy collectible CDs and DVDs at poddisc.com. And check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and the imminent fantasy podcast, Podcastle. Podcastle now has a feed, by the way, and Rachel's put up her first metacast at podcastle.org. It's great stuff. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quote comes from the poet John Ciardi, who said, You don't have to suffer to be a poet. Adolescence is enough suffering for anyone. We'll see you next week, and have fun. Have fun.